On Cinema Smorgasbord presents How Do You Do Fellow Kids? We look at the life and film career of the always unique character actor, Steve Buscemi. So let's go. Welcome to How Do You Do Fellow Kids, I'm Doug Tilly, and with me as usual is the explosive thin man, Liam O'Donnell. Today we're looking at the beloved Jim Jarmusch anthology film, Mystery Train. How are you doing today, Liam? Would you think of this as an anthology film? Is that how you think of it? I mean, it's, they call it a triptych, right? Where you have yeah. three stories, yeah. but it is still an anthology movie. It's telling three separate stories that do intersect in some kind of minor way and certainly in thematic ways. But yeah, I think anthology isn't the wrong way to describe it. I mean, do you think of Crash as an anthology film? No, I don't. <laughs> yeah, see, this is my deal. I think that this film... People getting off on watching car crashes. I don't see, think of Not that, that Crash. I meant the <laughs> shitty Crash. <laughs> I know you did, Liam. I'm just having a little bit of fun with you. Uh, but uh, no, I, in fact, I've never seen the shitty Crash. Oh, man. I saw it in the theater when it came out, and I was very not happy about that. Anyways, point, uh, what I'm trying, the point I'm trying to make is this. Um, I think in every anthology film, maybe not every, but in a lot of anthology films, there is an effort to tie the stories together that feels somewhat artificial. Whereas in a film like this, the reason I lean out of anthology and into this idea of the triptych is that the three stories rely upon each other and are tied together by one central event. Mm. Um, and I would say that a movie like Crash or maybe even a movie like Magnolia is attempting to do something similar by having these uh, stories unite. And the, the question is like how well they do it. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I Anyways, it's not worth arguing about this. It's it's the movie is what it is, but it's just funny when you said it. I'm like, I've never heard anyone refer to this as an anthology film before, and I I had to stop and think. Like, I think you're right. The method that Jarmusch does makes it feel like separate stories. And even though there is this uniting event of the song and the and the gunshot, it's not enough to necessarily make it not feel like separate stories. I don't know. I don't know. That's it's it's just an interesting thought. I mean, it's interesting because when we talk about the movie proper, we're probably going to talk about which of our stories, which of the three stories at its core, are our personal favorites. So they're obviously seen as three separate pieces of this story. Yeah, but you could say that in any narrative, like the yeah. But you wouldn't say that about plot. Magnolia, right? I mean, no one's going to say. I mean, you I might have. Say, I would. Yeah, that's exactly oh, yeah, you how would? I talk about Magnolia. Yeah, that uh -huh. like some of the narrative threads make sense and some of them don't. Yeah, but that could be said about almost any movie. It doesn't necessarily... That's what I'm saying. I think the idea that this is like completely... I, this is why when I think of an anthology, I always talk about how the wraparound is the most important thing. Because the wraparound is the bullshit that makes you believe this is one movie and not just three short films. Yeah, but and not every anthology has a wraparound. Well, then I, then I don't know what... Then I probably don't like it. It sounds like <laughs> some bullshit I don't want to watch. Liam, one of the things I was looking at recently is what are some upcoming Steve Buscemi projects we should be getting excited about? Oh, I'm this is so a podcast yes. devoted to the uh, life and career of the beloved actor Steve Buscemi. Uh -huh. And I went to the Internet Movie Database. You ever heard about this wait. site? I've this heard. A... Yeah, I use it all the time. I use it yeah. regularly. 
to I don't have a joke. I don't know what I'm going for. It's a very badly designed website. I can't believe that oh, we it's all horrible. rely on it so heavily. And the app is even worse. It like half the time it doesn't work. <laughs> well, I looked up Steve Buscemi and I was like, let's see what he's going to be doing next. And there's yes. nothing. There's what? zero projects lined up for uh, this guy, uh, Steve Buscemi. Film that is over. About. Cinema has ended. I wonder if it was because, uh, I, this is something that you might have heard about too. There's an ongoing global pandemic, Liam, that is currently occurring. I don't Maybe Steve Buscemi decided that, you know what? Instead of uh, risking my neck out there, I'm going to uh, wait a bit and uh, maybe line up a few projects post-pandemic. So you're trying to say that he's a cuck. That's what you're trying to say. Is that what you, you think that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, notoriously, you have been anti-mask on this podcast oh, and now man. anti-vaccine to those, a great extent. Those, those fucking masks. I can't tell if you're smiling or, crit- or frowning. Liam, That's important when you're around, I can reason. assure you that the frown is a lot more likely. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you're right. The pandemic is actually good. I don't know why that didn't occur to me when you first mentioned this, is that that the pen, you know, maybe maybe if we looked at a few actors IMDB pages, we might notice that they don't have a ton going on. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I can tell you that Eric Roberts still has a lot of projects. <laughs> I, well, and I worry about that too. Like if Eric Roberts is getting older, like what if he gets uh, anyways, sorry. Maybe he got vaccinated. That's fingers crossed. I think he would talk about it. He seems like the kind of guy who would yeah. have the picture with like yeah. his arm. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. All I'm saying is I'm extremely disappointed that there's no future Buscemi for me to look forward to. And wouldn't it be interesting if his final film ever was Hubie Halloween? I mean, it's not a terrible way to go out, I guess. I don't know. I haven't seen it. You have. <laughs> Liam, I thought it would be fun for us to talk about in this opening segment. You know, one of the things about Steve Buscemi is that he is a regular collaborator with a number of filmmakers that you see him pop up in certain filmmakers films again and again and i thought it would maybe be fun to talk about which one of these directors or pairs of directors because we're also talking about the coen brothers most benefit from steve buscemi showing up in their films liam o'donnell and that especially ties into today's episode because he's worked with jim jarmusch a few times he's worked with Quentin Tarantino a few times. We already mentioned Adam Sandler. He's worked in the Adam Sandler-verse a number of times. And, of course, he's popped up in the films of the Coen brothers a number of times as well, Liam. Which of those directors do you think that Steve Buscemi has most uh, blessed with his appearances? I mean, my inclination, of course, is to say the Coen brothers because those performances are some of my favorite of his. Right. Um, mm. I will say when it comes to bringing the most... It's hard not to sort of jokingly say Adam Sandler because oftentimes <laughs> even the worst Adam Sandler movie, the Steve Buscemi pop-up is kind of funny. And you're like, oh, that was kind of funny. So, But I don't know that a charming or funny Steve Buscemi performance in an Adam Sandler film saves an Adam Sandler film, you know? Whereas you could easily argue that uh, without Steve Buscemi, Fargo and The Big Lebowski just don't work as well you know right. I, I think it's a bit of a stretch with Fargo because there's so many other great things but um, as much as I love other aspects of the Big Lebowski I really think his performance is part of that uh, alchemy that makes that movie so funny for me I know a lot of people there's some backlash against Big Lebowski but to me that it, it's funny and charming top to bottom and part of that is is his understated performance and and his his you know being the third aspect of that triumvirate that is the the friends liam i uh 
I once used to read a film guide. This is one of the things sure. I used to do back in Newfoundland. I like to read yeah. a lot of film guides. And Sounds one of them nerdy. Was, Sounds like mm-hmm. you. Yeah, I used to read the Time Out Film Guide from Time Out Magazine. I liked it very much. And one of the things that Time Out usually would say about both the films of Stanley Kubrick and the films of the Coen brothers is that they're very cold movies, that they're very distant from their characters, that they don't seem to love their characters, that it's very kind of um, clinical the way that they uh, tell their stories. Would you agree with that? Hmm. I would be inclined to agree with that about Kubrick, though I'm no expert, so I mm-hmm. I, I couldn't I, I wouldn't make that claim because I don't think I've seen enough of his of of his movies, but I do think of the ones I've seen that seems fair. Uh, of the Coen Brothers, I'm of a mixed mind because I think that there is a certain amount of affection for some of their characters. However, they don't seem particularly sentimental. I don't. I don't think they feel bad when their characters suffer. I think that they think of that as quite honestly part of the fun. And so um, I don't know. I, I, I've never quite – I don't know how to uh, evaluate the, the coldness of a director per se. It's just not something I've ever really focused on. Um, oftentimes when I feel in a movie that the director doesn't seem too concerned with the characters, that actually seems more like a writing issue, like – there's not much for this character. There's just not much of this character in the movie. And so I don't feel that way about Coen Brothers films. But do I feel like maybe they don't like all their characters or that they really make their characters suffer for our amusement? Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if that makes them cold. (laughs) That might make them, maybe they're very passionate about the suffering of their characters. I'm, I'm not sure, you know? It's it's interesting you mentioned the sentimentality that a lot of these films don't have because we just mentioned the Hudsucker Proxy as a film that Steve Buscemi appears in and that is their most sentimental film I think by a pretty significant amount but I do feel like the sentimentality has some issues in that movie that it's it, it doesn't quite land for me because of the sentimentality in it because it feels kind of like it's imitating sentimentality as opposed to you know sincerely coming to it. But but I do think that as their careers went along, particularly post Fargo and including Fargo, that there that a lot of that warmth that uh, maybe wasn't as present in their movies previous to that, it starts to develop. I do think there's a lot of warmth for Mar- Marge in Fargo, and that might be yeah. because of the fact that uh, the lead actress is married to one of the Coen brothers. Sure. But also, I think there is some warmth in The Big Lebowski. I think Oh Brother Where Art Thou. There's a lot of of kind of uh, love for the main characters there as well. I just think that. It depends on the story they're trying to tell. It just happened that a lot of their early films didn't have characters that kind of lent themselves to that. I wouldn't limit it just... I would say it definitely depends on the story because um, what's the movie where all the bad things happen to the man? I'm trying to remember... uh, A Serious Man? A Serious Man. Mm -hmm. They're certainly unsentimental about that character and about (laughs) anyone in that film. I love that movie so much. Oh, it's so good. (laughs) That's why the criticism of their cold seems weird to me. But um, because a movie like that is like, yeah, I mean, they're clearly not, you know, uh, they're clearly unafraid to make that man suffer. But does that hinder the film in some way. I don't know what I, what else they're supposed to do to tell that story. Right. But I, I, I do I do want to say, I think you're right. I think um, I think of a film in which we feel a definite affection, not just as audience members, but from the way the story is told, is something that they've developed over time. I think it is more present. But they still do movies where it's unclear. And, and I would even say like a movie like Inside Lewin Davis is both. And that's one of the reasons 
I think that's one of my favorite Coen Brothers films because I think mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a combo. They really let us see both that Lewin Davis is a bit of a a, a cad, a jerk, a jerk mm-hmm. off maybe, uh, and yet they clearly have affection for him in the how they portray him too, and yet he is made to suffer. I think it's like sort of a mashup of a lot of things I see them do in other films, and that's partly why I find it so charming and really like enjoy it every time I watch it, which is. Maybe not regularly, but more than I have some of their other films. You know, um, a friend of the show and collaborator with us on the Jodowski podcast, Julia Marchesi, she recently put a, a tweet out asking for movies that people like to kind of watch to relax, that they find very relaxing to watch, movies that don't necessarily have a lot of uh, surprises or exciting action, a movie that you just can put on and just kind of chill out with. And it's kind of funny to say this, but even though it's kind of got a, to- a dour tone, Inside Lewin Davis is one of those movies for me. It's a movie that I just sure, like to kind of sure. exist in that world for a little while. I could see that. I mean, yes, it's it has melancholy to it, but there's just something about that world and especially the music aspect to it. Like, I know you're a real folky, so I'm I sure am. that I'm really appeals to you. I mean... <laughs> I don't even – that sounded like I'm busting your butt, but I'm really not, actually. Like, I have nothing against that music or that world at all, and, and I really appreciate some of the artists that you really love. I also it's a, It is a white-ass world. I mean, I, I certainly oh, recognize to- that. No, totally. I, I think that's fair. Um, but it isn't exclusively, and, um, and I do think, like uh, – there's some real anyways we don't have to get into all that i I, we both we i I will say as an end cap on the folky conversation we both tend to appreciate the versions of that world that were super political uh not exclusively you know there are folk artists who seem okay that weren't but my favorite of that world are super political and, and in that sense sometimes have lyrics that are far more incendiary and insightful than anything that came out of punk unless we're talking about like you know, anarchist peace punks that only freaks like, you know what I mean? Like when we talk about the punk, most people mean, you know, the sex pistols could never compare to some of these folk artists, you know? Mm-hmm. So we were talking a little about the Coen brothers there. Now, I think that when people think of collaborative directors with Steve Buscemi, a lot of people think of Quentin Tarantino, even right. though they really only have worked together in two films, Reservoir Dogs, of course, but in Pulp Fiction, but he's only in Pulp Fiction basically uh, in a blink and you'll miss it uh, p- part as the Buddy Holly waiter. Uh, they did act together in Desperado, and if anything, Quint- uh, uh, Robert Rodriguez has worked with Steve Buscemi even more than Quentin Tarantino, but I think it's because a lot of people, when they think of the defining Steve Buscemi role, they're thinking of Reservoir Dogs. What do you think of those kind of, uh, I mean, it's really hard to talk about the Pulp Fiction performance, but do you have a lot of love for that Reservoir Dogs performance? Eventually, we're going to cover that as a film. Uh, We'll see when we get there. My thought on it right now is I do like that performance. Uh, I've gone back and forth on that film. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I'm into it, sometimes I'm not. Yeah. I don't know. The last time I watched it, I remember liking it, Um, but I was feeling inclined to, so I, I don't know. I will say that I will say that any of my difficulties with it have nothing to do with the fact that it imitates or directly steals from other movies because I don't give a no. fuck about it. Yeah, that. that doesn't matter to me. Um and, and it's hard to have a good attitude about Tarantino. Like recently they you know, the clip of him uh uh defending uh what's his name? Like that that went viral again and he had to apologize for that. Uh uh Polanski, you know, that right. horrible clip from from uh from Howard. 
uh, mm-hmm. where he defends Polanski. It's like just skeevy. It's like the worst. I mean, granted, he, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out about Tarantino that makes you think that he might be a jerk. But something about that audio, it made me the most uncomfortable of any of the things. Sure. Because it's so disturbing. Uh, and, yeah, he apologized for it. He's, you know, taking it back or whatever. But it's hard for me to think, like, when I rewatch Reservoir Dogs, am I going to be now – thinking about that more than I'm thinking about the quality of the movie. I don't know. But I will say, I think the reason is because the Reservoir Dogs performance and even the cameo in Pulp Fiction is uh, a mark of the 90s, like, Buscemi-sons. Like, yes, I, I think absolutely. that really he crested in our public imagination. Now, I don't know if that means money-wise he did or even roles-wise. Like, yes, he had some bigger roles after that time, but I'm not sure if those were if those movies were directly responsible for that or not. I just think in the perception of me and other film fans, we see that moment as like, oh, that's when Buscemi really like happened. And and therefore, we think of him and Tarantino together. But you're right. Like, In fact, I would say if you take away Samuel, Samuel uh, L. Jackson, Tarantino's actually worked with a few different people over time, mm-hmm. considering he hasn't made a ton of... You know, like... Uh, it, it, it's hard to compare it to the Coen brothers when they've made so many more movies than he has. You know, <laughs> yeah, he really yeah, hasn't yeah. made that many movies. So, like, two collaborations feels like a lot among uh, whatever. But, I mean, obviously, it, you know, if you take away Samuel L. Jackson, in my mind, he's worked with a variety of different people with only a few people showing up more than once, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can make a case at this point that Brad Pitt's collaborations or even Leonardo DiCaprio's right, with right. Quentin Tarantino at this point are as substantial as uh, Steve Buscemi's, but the, it is interesting looking at the Coen brothers and Jim Jarmusch working with him. It's hard to imagine that Steve Buscemi gets to Con Air or Armageddon right. without that connection with Quentin Tarantino because he was so big in the 90s. Well, but it is worth mentioning that this movie, which to me doesn't have a, a long tail, I don't see a lot of people still talking about it. it this movie it- talk- being... Mystery Train. Mystery Train. Uh, It hit at a time when Jarmusch was also kind of hot. And Mm -hmm. so, like, I think you're right. Like, Tarantino is probably the... the, the uh, trampoline it, that sort of vaults Buscemi into more mental attention than than more so than uh, than Jarmusch, but I think the combo of all three is part of what gave him his you know uh, cool points, which I think is part of what sold him uh, in a bigger way because there was just sort of this I, and all of that kind of feels tied to me like this feeling in the '90s that that there were all these aspects of less popular culture that we could mine for money. And so mm-hmm. suddenly, like, the coolest thing was to not be that cool and popular. You know, it was kind of a weird time. You know, it, I always describe it uh, using the the Applejacks commercials, right? Because that's when those commercials were really big. That, like, the way to sell Applejacks is not to talk about what it tastes like. It's to convince people that you're a true rebel if you eat it. So every commercial is just some adult telling you, they don't even taste like apples. And kids being like, oh, fuck you, dad. And then like ollieing and shit. Like that's every Applejacks commercial from the 90s. That was part of a whole vibe. So like Steve Buscemi being 
not what people would expect of a Hollywood actor was partly why he was sold as a Hollywood actor. And him having worked with, he's worked with Jarmusch, he's worked with Tarantino, he's worked with the Coen brothers. Mm -hmm. It all gave this like feeling of coolness that helped his career in those ways move forward um, to positive and negative effects probably. Like I'm sure if if we could get him on this podcast, oh my God, that'd be amazing. Um, (laughs) You know, he might have a mixed take on that. Like it's hard for us to know, but from a distance it looks like, yeah, he got some bigger roles, but maybe that also was part of him being pigeonholed into certain kinds of roles. I don't know. I I wonder if there's a point where you're reaching a certain level of success. Obviously, he's working quite a bit, but then there's that one role that launches you to that next level. I mean, we hear about that all the time, but for someone like him, who's more of a character actor, does it work the same way? And the reason I bring this up is this: in this past week, I put a tweet out about Samuel L. Jackson, another collaborator that we've already just been talking about with Quentin Tarantino. And the idea, like, he shows up everywhere. If you're watching TV in the late 80s, yeah. if you're watching a lot of early 90s movies, he, I was watching Coming to America, and he shows up in, in that movie um, in, a, in a fairly memorable role. But just in these bits and pieces, and Pulp Fiction, for him, seemed like that movie, right? For And I said, I, I said almost embarrassingly, that I thought of him as the loaded weapon guy before that, the loaded weapon, the lethal weapon parody movie. I, I That's what I knew Samuel L. Jackson uh, for before Pulp Fiction came out. And then after Pulp Fiction, you can actually see a mark in his career that you get Die Hard with a Vengeance and you get A Time to Kill and you get all all these movies that kind of defined him, the really mainstream Hollywood movies. And I wonder if Steve Buscemi has a moment like that. It doesn't seem like it would be as early as Reservoir Dogs, but it feels like once Pulp Fiction came out, even though he's barely in that movie, that because of his connection with Tarantino, that that was the launching point. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I honestly don't know. It feels like that. It feels like that's where the cultural sort of cachet comes from. I mean, Fargo felt like maybe the, the place where it really kind of crystallized. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and, and that's partly like if we put this dire- this question the other way, which directors benefited Buscemi the most, let alone right. him benefiting their movies? Again, as much as people talk about Tarantino, I got to go with the Coen brothers. He was just, yeah. he was given, even if they weren't the biggest roles, they were so memorable. And mm-hmm. so I think important to people who are fans of his work. Yeah, 100%. I don't know if you've ever seen the Coen brothers segment from uh, the anthology film, <laughs> Paris is a Tem. Uh, but that's, uh, that is, it's like a, that's a core, just Coen brothers and Steve Buscemi just doing their thing together. Uh, you can tell that they have a lot of trust in one another in terms of their relationship. Yeah, definitely. Liam, I think it's time for us to take a break after that lengthy conversation. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Jim Jarmusch's 1989 film, Mystery Train. Very excited to talk about this right after this. You know what? I saw on the television the other day where those Chinese over there in China, they all want to eat macaroni and cheese. And don't you think that kind of odd, what with all the Chinese food they got? Uh. Yeah, I, uh, I didn't hear about that. I guess I must have missed that program. Like I said, I was just passing by. I saw you in here cleaning up. It just sort of hit me. How's about a haircut? It's the first one I ever had at nighttime like this. Well, listen, I, I usually don't cut hair at night, so uh, next time you come back during the daytime, okay? 
Three stories are connected by a Memphis hotel in the spirit of Elvis Presley. It's 1989's Mystery Train, directed by Jim Jarmusch, also the director of uh, Stranger Than Paradise, Down by Law, which I mentioned before, Night on Earth, Ghost Dog, Way of the Samurai, uh, Only Lovers Left Alive, and a number of other notable ones. This is also written by Jim Jarmusch. As uh, we mentioned before, it's kind of a triptych, three stories in one. Uh, the first story has a Japanese couple, um, uh, Masatoshi Nagasi and Yuki Kodo. Uh, we also have some other kind of familiar faces pop up in other roles as well. But uh, Liam, I really kind of want to break this down into its three component parts. But before we do that, what did you think of Mystery Train? Uh, I liked it a lot. I think, uh, I don't know how I missed it, honestly, because I do like Jim Jarmusch. Maybe I haven't uh, made as much of an effort as I should to catch all of his films, but for whatever reason, uh, haven't seen this one before, and it felt very much like a Jim Jarmusch movie, which <laughs> might not, does. which <laughs> might not mean a lot to everyone listening. But uh, he just has a way of pacing things that I think might. This is kind of weird, Doug, but but I think his way of of pacing films and and showing characters, I think this style is a little more prevalent than it used to be like like mm-hmm. i think some viewers now would see this as the way a lot of independent film is made yes. and maybe mm-hmm. maybe even i think incorrectly say it's an indie style it's like it's a it's almost like it's become its own way of filmmaking um i don't know how true that was at the time though um if it feels to me it's very much his sort of vibe his own kind of 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 uh unique filmmaking um i think there's a lot here kind of under the surface i think uh i think there's a commentary at least at the minimum on sort of the the faded glory that is uh memphis uh about the idea of representation um we constantly see representations of elvis Elvis is everywhere. You could yeah. say this film is haunted <laughs> by Elvis. And there's a suggestion almost that uh, the more we represent Elvis, the bigger he resides in our imagination and the less meaning he has, the less sort of he makes sense. It's it's like in abstraction, the value is gone even as the the presence is there if, if that or, or maybe it's the other way around maybe the size is there but there's nothing there behind it if that makes sense um and and i think that is represented in the ways that the our ideas of of this birthplace of rock and roll don't necessarily represent the place itself and what it's actually like and, and how many of the figures that are in my mind, part of the alchemy that creates Elvis Presley have been forgotten. Like without these people in Memphis's past, would we even know who Elvis Presley is? And yet they don't necessarily hold the same sort of cultural cachet that, that he does. It's almost like the place itself is eclipsed by Graceland, even though we never see Graceland in the film at all. Yeah. It's just sort of, <laughs> sort of there. Uh, I think there's also stuff going on at, at, at least with class, I, I also think with race, I think there's a you know certain decisions made or, around using the Elvis version of Mystery Train at first, and then switching to the Junior Parker version. Um, I think there the, the the constant commentary on the uh, uh, black artists who aren't given the same amount of attention, uh, the anxiety that our man Buscemi feels as this like uh, middle class. A uh, white dude who who's not used to being out at night, and let alone in places that are considered uh, 
unseemly or dangerous and his un- being uncomfortable in this black bar where his friend is and even even Joe Strummer being this uh drunk man who's who's uh uh uh, gone to wash his sorrows away in a community that he's not actually a part of. Right. Uh, all of all of that sort of uh, I think is there. Even if uh, I don't think the movie itself goes at any of these things directly, they're all part of the atmosphere. But in a Jarmusch movie, the atmosphere is the movie. You know, so like even if you say like, well, the complex uh, socioeconomic realities of Memphis are part of the atmosphere. Well, yeah, but that's what the movie is like. Most of the movie is the atmosphere. So all of these decisions, even if they're made in the moment, I think are intentional and are part of sort of creating this this narrative, which, uh, you know, I, I think if. For for people for whom a film is primarily how interesting the story is, right. uh, you know, there's not a ton going on here. This isn't no. about a complicated plot, but none of that mattered to me. And I was still kind of amazed that the movie has really funny parts. Like, there's a lot of darkness in this film, and there's a lot of melancholy in the film, and yet... I laughed, uh, not a lot, but but enough to be like, oh, this is still a kind of comedy, and uh, and I really appreciate that about the film. So I think the performances are great. I like the music choices. I, I don't know. It, it's it's not a movie I would necessarily like lift up. Like, you know, you have to see this movie. Uh, but I just found it charming, kind of from beginning to end. Yeah, I think charming is a good word to describe it. I'm a I'm a pretty big fan of Jim Jarmusch, as I mentioned before. Down by Law is one of my favorite movies and this is sort of his follow-up to down by law and it has a lot of that same charm and it has a lot of that same uh pacing and style as well even though this is a much more colorful movie and i mean that literally as well as figuratively um i do want to talk about something that jim jarmusch has mentioned in a number of interviews which is the idea that american culture is sort of wrapped up in popular culture and that uh the are these locations of american popular culture like memphis like what we see in this film they bring people from all over the world to see them they become these attractions and that's what we kind of um see in this movie they're they're magnetic to people but they're not all magnetic like they are in the first story in the second story we have a visitor from another country who just by happenstance ends up in this area in the third story you have the joe strummer character who you know doesn't even like being called elvis even though his hair is the only reason people call him that is because his hair somewhat resembles elvis's hair um and that story doesn't really have the same sort of um the, the people within it are not drawn to the place. They're just in the place. And so it's interesting to see that people, all these different stories are centered on this one location, but the way that they end up in that location are very, very different. Um, I want to get your thoughts on, you're a music person. You're a person who really is connected with music. Do you have a lot of those kind of personal connections with the music of this area, with the Sun Studios catalog, with Elvis? Oh, no. I... Uh... I definitely have a bit of like a a, a recency bias uh, when it comes to music, uh, mm-hmm. and we've talked about this on the show before. That it, it I wasn't I was in my thirties when I decided that maybe it was not embarrassing to listen to classic rock. Sure, like I just assumed like any rock and roll music made before nineteen seventy seven was probably not worth caring about. <laughs> 
and I and I kind of stuck to that for a long time. Um, and it was only as I got older that I was like, well, that just can't possibly be true, especially because there's roots to things. There's beginnings of things. And so a lot of what's happening in Memphis is the roots of things that I would care about later. Um, and I, I sometimes wish I was enough of an archaeologist to care about that. And I have friends who, who are, who've searched out these ancient, in my mind, 45s of these, uh, you know, roots uh, of rock and roll, original blues, all these sort of uh, uh, people who were, in, in reality, creating the the frameworks that would become modern music. And that goes throughout. There's so much of their influence, not just in what we would think of as, as quote unquote rock today, but obviously throughout popular music of all kinds, you know, and, and, and let alone R and B jazz, hip hop, all, all the stuff that people care about today wouldn't exist without these pioneers. And yet digging into that stuff. And some of that is obviously recording bias you know that that like it's hard to find the recording quality is not always great sure right, um, of but also just like the style is not necessarily up my alley though with some huge exceptions and e- even this movie features one of them like I, I say i don't like a lot of old music but screaming jay hawkins is in this film and he's <laughs> one of those people that like sure there's songs i don't like but nine times out of ten you know, I, I don't go out and buy a, a full record, but I like a lot of the songs I've heard and I have a lot of respect for what he was doing, bringing in some of the more spooky aspects as well. So I, I don't know. It's not like I have no appreciation for it. And I certainly on a, uh, let's say, cultural academic level, appreciate how important that area is uh, when it comes to Elvis specifically. The man is only important for being one in a long line of white people to steal things from black people and get famous. Uh, as far as his actual work, I don't get it. I don't get the appeal, honestly. But uh, but I don't hate it. I'm not like, oh, is that Elvis? Turn it off. It's, it doesn't bum me out. Um, like, say, I don't know, Pink Floyd does. But uh, I know that was so unfair. Someone's gonna get so bad. Uh, but but uh, but I don't. I don't. I've never quite gotten it. When when again, it doesn't feel like a far off thing. Like when I say Elvis, I'm not like, oh, that's like what my parents like because they don't even really like Elvis that much. I've known contemporaries who were obsessed with Elvis, who were convinced that Elvis was the best thing of their parents' generation that to care about, and I've never understood it. And I I, I don't know. I don't really get the appeal. I mean, Elvis, as you've suggested, he, because he's a larger-than-life figure, his image is kind of haunts this entire film, right? From right. The, the title, uh, from his appearance in all of these different hotel rooms in the hotel that uh, most of the film takes place in, to his literal ghost, which shows up not only in a story, but almost on a literal level in the second uh, of the of the three stories that are on display here, so it's hard to separate this movie from Elvis. But I think I think we have a, a similar opinion on it, which is that you don't get necessarily the indication that Jim Jarmusch loves Elvis. No, that he he thinks him as this unimpeachable thing. It's just that Memphis and Elvis are so connected that you can't kind of separate them. I like how even the characters in the movie seem like some of the characters seem to love Elvis, but other characters are like, "Oh, I prefer Carl Perkins." Right? Like the, right, that they're right. that 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 musically Elvis is almost too big to be the cool guy anymore. Yeah, and I think that to me that feels like part of what uh, you know, I think it's a stretch to say like what is the movie about? But one of the right. themes in the film is this idea that that's a representative of Memphis itself. Like it, it's really telling to me that uh, we see 
uh, Sun Records, right? But then the Stax Theater is abandoned, which it was. It's not like they made it look abandoned for this <laughs> right, movie. Right? Um, and we only know it's the Stax Theater because someone has uh, graffiti stacks on it, you know, onto the plywood, uh, you know, which is arguably as important to the history of music, but it has different connotations maybe than Sun Records for some people. Um, and, and I think this, even the idea of Memphis, like it's important for people to remember, like after uh, the uh, assassination of Martin Luther King and, and various riots and stuff, downtown Memphis kind of kind of was in stasis. It, 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 you know, there wasn't a lot of development. And so what we see in this film is, a bit of a, uh, I would say, even a tribute to those parts of America that have been forgotten in 1989, that that are still there, are still an important part of our culture, but had not seen any of the supposed benefits of Reagan's America whatsoever. And and I, I again, it, it, not saying that Jarmusch is being that explicitly political, but he obviously has made a decision in what he's showing us and made a decision about how, what kind of story about Memphis he's going to tell. That, that for the first story, which we'll talk about in a little more detail momentarily, that Jun and Mitsuko have come to Memphis to experience Sun Studios and Graceland, but that's just part of the tour that they're on, right? They're moving on to uh, to visit, uh, you know, the birthplace of Fats Domino, I think they said, next afterwards on the train. This, it, for them, is part of a tour of these things that they love about America, but there isn't necessarily a lot of connection with the place outside of what it provided to them culturally. Yeah, I think that's true. I think obviously they've come to love aspects of it, and June has clearly dedicated his whole, you know, Mitsuko. <laughs> she 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 could maybe be also interested in other kinds of rock, like you know what I mean. Like she, whatever, like her style is kind of fifties uh, ish, but it also has a bit of a like eighties feel. Like Absolutely, June. He he just wants to be a greaser, which is like. Not it's people watching this might think like, oh, look at Jarmouche. Like, is he mocking these people? This is a real thing. That's real. Absolutely it is. I mean, it, it's it, – I, I can't – we don't even have time to go into the various subcultures in Japan that are based on different time periods in other countries. But Have you ever there's, seen there's like a subculture in Japan currently where they uh, they trick out cars uh, like, like um, in the style of like Hispanic – car enthusiasts yeah, yeah and like yes. they 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 imitate their dress and their music and it's i mean truly unique and bizarre uh i mean in the 90s there was a big reggae period in japan and it was popular to get your hair kinked so it looked like black hair oh, and to get good. your skin darkened and to try to that. get dreadlocks oh yeah it was a whole thing and of course it's not like you know when you see a white hippie with dreads you know like chances are they didn't pay a million dollars for that they just had a friend put egg yolks in their hair or something gross like that right. this was like <laughs> this was people this was not a underground culture thing in japan this was a high class thing so people were paying hair salons thousands of of yen to fucking mess with their hair to make it look like dreadlocks it wasn't like a diy pour some gunk in my hair sort of thing this was like a sign of how rich you are was to do this to your hair and i remember seeing that in a special and on on uh it's probably on mtv or some bullshit and just being like <laughs> what is even happening but that's you know that's a that's a common thing is you know to have these sort of uh identities in uh pop culture that involve a lot of 
you know, your appearance and how you look. And that's not uncommon here. Like the similarities between Japanese punk and American punk is like probably the idea that like wearing a certain kind of costume is part of like your identity if you're into a certain kind of thing. I just don't think Americans sometimes understand how that is not unique to punks there that a lot of people who like a lot of different things might want to wear those things, you know, significantly. I'm thinking, you know, of obviously like anime fans and uh, sure. greasers and all that but even like i don't know there are fans there of certain national socialist parties that like yeah. to dress up and that's uncomfortable and not cool but that is you know that phenomena of embodying something seems to be a part of the culture there even now um that segment the first segment so just to for for anyone not as familiar with um mystery train it's split into three segments the first one is far from yokohama which has this japanese couple who have traveled to visit memphis tennessee uh because they're great enthusiasts of the music from uh from the 1950s from sun studios which we see them visit though they can't really understand the tour it's not really very inviting to international people that's for sure the second story is uh called a ghost uh this mostly stars nicoletta brashi who um, also appeared in Down by Law as a, uh, a person stuck in Memphis, basically, because of their flight got stuck there. And uh, she's Louisa. She runs into a very creepy gentleman played by Tom Noonan, who tells her a story about uh, Elvis's ghost. Then she connects with Elizabeth Bracco in a the same hotel that the Japanese couple ended up in. And uh, she has a vision as they're staying in the same hotel room of Elvis's ghost overnight. And then there's the third story called Lost in Space, which has three characters connecting together. We have Steve Buscemi, Rick Aviles, uh, and Joe Strummer um, uh, from The Clash. And they have an interesting night together that also uh, lands them at the hotel, which involves a gunshot that rings out through all throughout all three stories. Liam, of those three stories, which is your personal favorite? That's a good question. I mean, the one I find... <clears throat> the most immediately engaging is far from Yokohama because mm -hmm. I just, that idea of a fish out of water in this particular circumstance is interesting to me. But I find myself thinking about lost in space the most, partly because I don't know. I, I mean, not just because our man, you know, Buscemi <laughs> is in that part, but specifically of his character. And, and we can get to more details about this when we talk about his performance. Um, when the segment starts, I'm thinking of uh, Joe Strummer's character. Uh, what's his name? I forget his well, name. Well, it's Johnny, right? but he everyone yeah. calls him Elvis. Yeah. I, I think of him as being the one who maybe is lost. But as the night goes on, it, it's really Buscemi, right? He, mm -hmm. through this relationship he has with Joe Strummer's, with Elvis, with this fake Elvis, uh, through his relationship he's connected and brought into this world that is completely alien to him in every And a relationship way. that he finds out doesn't even really exist. No. Because he, he's supposed to be his brother-in-law, but he finds out that his sister actually isn't even married to him. And they've already yeah. broken up at the point that they're connected in this episode. So there really is no connection. So Buscemi is like brought in not just on a night of revelry, but on a, on a homicide, uh... On some connection he doesn't even have. So in in a sense, he's the one who's like kind of lost in space, right? But then, I, I don't know, I kind of feel that way for Will Robinson as well because he is friends with Elvis, but he also like, why is he with these two white boys? You know, like <laughs> why everyone in the situation doesn't really kind of belong. I, I guess Joe Strummer does the most, but even he is kind of like out of place in a sense. And, uh, and 
you know, I don't, again, there's all these signs here that there's more going on beneath the surface that aren't maybe essential, but are worth noting, you know, the economic conditions that would lead them to be laid off, you know, and Mm -hmm. uh, sort of the idea of um, how to navigate a world that still is racist, you know, and and what do you do about that reality? Um, And even the idea of like, uh, is in some way Joe Strummer's presence in this community slightly invasive he's just you know this relationship between the white community and the black community is tense i would say and fraught and i and i think that is seen in the film as well so i don't know i just think there's a lot more for me to think about when it comes to the lost in space segment of the Mm -hmm. film however um i think a ghost has some interesting performances and i think the the uh the arrival of elvis is I think important for what Jarmusch has on his mind in this film. Uh, and I think far from Yokohama is just charming. I like these two weird Japanese people who are obsessed with these <laughs> artists. I like how uh, they're, they're just going along with it, even though nothing about this is designed for them. Like no one in Memphis, I think has really thought like Japanese people might come here or anyone internationally, and they might want to spend their tourist dollars because they care about this. Like, it's hostile in every way and yet they're there to like experience that and i don't i don't know i i found that section also kind of uh inspiring i kind of want to be that fish out of water and go somewhere Mm -hmm. that maybe isn't quite sure if i belong or not you know i do like that the way that they are shown as being fish out of water characters it is not like every other 80s movie involving japanese people you know what i mean oh 100 percent Right. And, and that they are shown to be individual and they're shown to be unique. And, and even, you know, even the scene where they're like loading their camera and stuff like that, it's not that they become this cliche of just taking pictures of everything that they look at. That, that there's, I, I, maybe it's because I'm hyper aware of it now in the year 2021 with all the recent violence against Asian people. But right. these depictions that you see in so many 80s movies are fraught with um, caricatures and unpleasant racist undertones it and i'm sure that there are elements of here that that you could pick out as well but it just it's nice to see these three-dimensional characters that are allowed to speak japanese that the whole segment is not meant to be palatable necessarily to people who who you know i always like a movie that it doesn't rely entirely on subtitles but has a segment with subtitles just because you know it weeds out those people who are going to revolt against that immediately when they walk into a theater well and i think for me not only are they human, but they're identifiable. And to me, in, in this segment, I just find myself in their shoes more than anyone. You know what I mean? Like, well, oftentimes the Asian characters in these more stereotypical roles, they're othered, they're made less than human, exactly. they're whatever. Mm-hmm. And you identify with all the people around them going, oh, I don't get these crazy Japanese people. It's like, a whatever. In this movie... I'm identifying with them. Like I'm looking at where they're at and how they're responding to it. And I'm feeling that more than I am anyone around them. You know what I mean? Like, yes, there are moments where there are communication issues, but I understand where they're at. You know what I mean? And even though they're eccentric, I, I don't know. I just found myself sort of more connected to them than to the other people at first in the film. I I'll admit that I don't have a lot of connection to the, a ghost segment. In, in the film. I, right. I, I'm not exactly sure why that is. I, I do like is maybe the wrong word to use. The, the part where um, 
where Nicoletta Brashi is kind of running into people when she goes yeah. to buy the magazine and and um, um, and or the newspaper it ends up with a bunch of magazines. And when she talks to Tom Noonan, even though that's a very kind of disturbing part of it to a certain extent, uh, as disturbing as this movie gets at the very least. But once she ends up in that uh, hotel room, I do find that bit kind of tiresome simply because it goes on so long. And I don't find that the, the Elvis ghost part to be that engaging for me. I do wonder, you mentioned already the idea of Joe Strummer being in this film. I probably mentioned it on one of our podcasts before that I'm a big fan of The Clash. But I do think that that casting is very intentional. You know, not that Jim Jarmusch is necessarily comparing Joe Strummer to Elvis, but the idea of, of, of this white musician who has a background in love and so let's say tribute to black artists i mean very notably the clash played a lot of reggae inspired music and rap inspired music and were very open about their influences but in a lot of ways found a lot more success than other artists in those genres the people of color who created them and i wonder if that is you know you mentioned some of the the racial undertones in this film i wonder if that's one of those as well yeah, I think that's probably fair. I mean, to to some extent, this movie is littered with musicians, which is like part of, I think, uh, the interesting idea that music is kind of going through the narrative here when it comes to talking about Memphis. But, you know, between, you know, the radio being Tom Waits or the guy who gets his cigar uh, lit being a, being a singer, like, mm-hmm. it, you know, Jarmusch loves putting these musicians into his film. But I do think that specific casting, it's got to be intentional, right? There's got to be people watching it, especially in 1989, making that connection more directly than they would maybe now. What, what did you think of these performances in the film? I mean, that's that's one of the things about casting people who are not primarily actors is that you might have kind of a, um, a mix, let's say, of performances. And I think Jim Jarmusch, one of the things that's fun about his films is that he does include a lot of non-professional actors. I mean, even like Tom Waits in Down by Law, Iggy Pop has shown up in a number of his films. Uh, these are people who, they bring kind of a unique presence, but not necessarily sterling acting quality. What did you think of some of the performers here? I mean, I honestly think the 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 only performance in the film that I thought was a little weak was Joe Strummer. Yeah, I have to agree, even though, I mean, again, I really like him. And I've seen him be good as an actor in other films, but I don't think he's that great here. No, he kind of is... A, it's a weird note too because he is asked to do a lot in this movie in my mind you know mm-hmm. I think playing drunk isn't easy I think playing that level of melancholy isn't easy I think even the scene where he shoots the guy the uh liquor store guy is like kind of not totally convincing like I, I just I just think he is the notably one... by the way that he, he shoots him after the the guy is overtly racist right yes 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 but you know he there's just a lot he's asked to do in this movie that's important that I don't know he's entirely convincing. And especially the in a movie where I think a lot of people really work. I don't know how experienced an actor screaming Jay Hawkins is, but he's good. I think uh I think honestly I, I don't have a lot of criticism. Sorry, I'm just speaking too quickly. It's okay. I don't have a ton of criticism for any of the other performances in the film. And some of them I thought were really great, even though I agree that that moment uh, in the second story starts to drag in the hotel room. Um, as much as it starts to drag, I think the performance 
Uh, the performance of the actor who is enacting the drag is very good. I mean, she's yeah. very believable at this yeah. woman who mm-hmm. cannot figure out when she should stop speaking. Um, I don't know that I love that sort of in the narrative, but she's certainly great in the role. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I think overall I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the film. I, I think acting in a Jarmusch film is probably not that easy. You know what I mean? Like th- there's a lot relying on these folks to be the center of the film instead of in a film that has a lot more plot. You you could maybe skate by a little bit easier, but there, there's a lot on these actors. And I think most people kind of step up to the plate other than Joe Strummer. I mean, I always think about Roberto Benigni in Down by Law, which is an impossible role. Yes. And, and a, a role where he is being Roberto Benigni, like you see him in so many other movies. And he wore out his kind of uh, United States mainstream welcome so quickly by being exactly that person that he is in real life. But somehow Jim Jarmusch was able to, I don't know, capture only the charming parts of that persona and none of the irritating parts. It's like lightning in a bottle in that particular movie. Uh, I really like the performances here. It's it's. We'll talk about Steve Buscemi in just a moment. I do think he's terrific in this, but he's very much a Steve Buscemi character, which is great, right? And it's exactly what you're here to see. I don't think Screaming Jay Jay Hawkins has to exactly stretch his persona very much, but he is such a welcome presence in this movie, and he brings such a weight to everything that he does. Um, And I'm like yourself. I'm a huge fan of Screaming Jay Hawkins, uh, and not only as a musician and as a personality, uh, as, as, as someone who has so much showmanship in his work, but also the very fact that he lived such a unique life. I mean, one of the things that's notable, I think he has like, I don't want to, to, to speculate, but he has a, let's say, a huge family out there. I think there was even a documentary about them all trying to find themselves a few years back. Um, and uh, it's hard to kind of gauge the performances in the first segment, but those are uh, uh, Masatoshi Nagasi and Yuki Kudo are obviously two actors who have gone on to a lot of acclaim and were even at the time and are very, you know, and, and I mean, kudos to them are able to be very magnetic in a sequence that is meant for them to be very kind of distant from the place that they're in. Um, Let's talk about this third segment in a little bit more detail, simply because it's so different than the first two segments. Uh, I love that, again, this kind of combination of these three characters having to play off each other. uh, They're all so different. I do want to talk a little bit about Rick Viles, who plays Will Robinson. I think he's terrific in this. He, of course, passed away away, uh, too young of HIV AIDS uh, in the early 90s. But uh, he, he really does, I mean, I was going to say hold his own, but that's unfair to him. Very respected performer at the time. But I think he's really, really great. But also, just going back to kind of the, the thematic elements that we're talking about, you know, the only he's the only black performer who has kind of a lead performance in this film. Uh, and, he, and that he references that overtly. And as I said, you know, the, the shooting that occurs is as a response to that. The idea that this Memphis location is this home of music that was created and came from the black experience where even uh, up to the late 80s that black experience was one that was still fraught with racism and violence yeah definitely and i think that it's also a thankless role because we have to believe that he is um that he cares about this Joe Strummer character <laughs> and is willing to go out of his way for him, but is also like sufficiently annoyed at what a 
jerk off he's being. You know, does that make I sense? I mean, Johnny basically dooms them, right? He dooms right. them by this right. decision that he makes. They've done nothing wrong, right? They're just trying. In fact, all they're doing is trying to stop violence from occurring, and it ends up creating this situation where they're all probably going to go to prison. I mean, you could argue that Johnny did nothing wrong, depending on who you are. But uh... I mean, I, I would I would agree with that. But I mean, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, yeah, it's it, it is at least irrational to just shoot the dude. I mean, the, you know, you got you got two friends at least like hit him with a bottle or something. But uh, it is true. Like, I don't as much as it might feel like he's making a noble decision. It also feels like. Does he really care? I don't think he cares about how it affects his friends. Like, yeah. I think if he really cares, I mean, cared, he was suicidal he even it. before right. they entered that liquor right. store. Right. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I will say giving the man his gun back was a mistake from the first. <laughs> Why they did that, I don't know. I think that was the first mistake. But I also think, like, you know, that the idea that this is a bad <laughs> night that's only gotten worse is sort of a theme in, quite honestly, blues music so i'm not surprised it's a theme in the film right liam let's talk about charlie the barber played by steve buscemi in this film he is the most unwilling participant in all of what goes on even to the point where when we see him first uh he actually uh, shows up briefly in the first segment what is he doing in that segment well in the yeah the very first segment he seems to have somehow caught a fishing pole onto <laughs> something outside and now he's trying to get it untangled and then we see him later giving a haircut but it's like after hours and he's trying to politely suggest to this guy that like he should come during the day when they're actually open but he can't figure out how to say it i love how the guy's like i've never gotten my haircut at night before and he's like yeah you're not supposed to i'm supposed to be closed right now oh man but but again all of this is sort of his character is this guy who doesn't seem capable of directly communicating with anyone really like even the way he handles like the is it okay if i even come in there it's like yeah there's just black people in there it's not there's no sign on the door no whites allowed i mean but the funny thing is like will robinson has to say oh yeah they let white people in there like there has he has to comfort him i love that his (laughs) his uh, first reaction is oh i'm gonna come along because my brother-in-law is in there but i'm gonna wait outside i'm not even gonna go in (laughs) there's just something about this character that he feels like a state because what we're seeing in the rest of the movie is um not exactly the high level of Memphis society. You right. know what I mean? Like, it's not mm-hmm. like there are no rich people in Memphis, but that's not what this movie is about. But Charlie is this middle class guy. He's a business owner. He operates during the day. Uh, my guess is he's not probably often in that neighborhood at night. You know what right? I mean? Even though his barbershop is there, there's some part of him that's like, why am I even here? That sun has gone down. Like, I think he's one of these people who doesn't go to places where you could even drink this late at night. He wants to be home watching, uh, uh, you know, the baseball game or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, there's a sense in which he is as much out of his element as our Japanese couple in the beginning of the film, just because it's a different time of the day and he's in different neighborhoods than he would normally be. Um, and, 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 and in some way, it feels like he's a stand-in. I'm sure if you asked him in his barbershop at noon, he would say, I'm a lifelong Memphis guy. You know, like, <laughs> this is where I'm from. This is who I am. And yet the movie immediately shows you he doesn't know his own city. He has no idea what it's like. He is completely out of his element in the place where he's from. Now, Steve Buscemi, 
he has a wheelhouse. It's a fairly sure. big wheelhouse. He can play yeah. a lot of, but in terms of stressed out, put upon, frustrated <laughs> characters, yeah. I don't think there's an actor in the world who does them as well as Steve Buscemi. And that is what Charlie the Barber is in this oh, film. Especially once shit goes down, once uh, oh, Elvis, yeah. once Johnny shoots that uh, liquor store uh, employee and they are on the run. He starts to freak out and he never stops except when he passes out drunk. And even then, that's just a brief pause until he wakes up and gets even more stressed and eventually shot in the leg, um, which I think is probably the biggest laugh in the entire movie um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> when I that mean, happens. Again, we first see him. He's outside of his barbershop with a fishing pole caught on something <laughs> above him and he's trying to get it untangled. And it looks insane. You already yes. think that man is the comedic sort of core of the film in some ways. And then, I mean, even when we get to the hotel room and he goes to turn the light on, the light just falls, not on him, but almost on him. Oh, man, come on. Like, he just, he is bound to be, stuff is going to go wrong for him the whole time. And and that's not to belittle the other two guys he's in this situation with, but in a way, I I wonder if he is a stand-in for part of the audience that feels like they're kind of out of water in this movie, you know? Right, right, right. You know, it's it's. Uh, I read that Jim Jarmusch had hadn't even been to Memphis at the time that he no. was putting this film together. That like, it, it's not like he had this direct connection with the area. That this movie could theoretically take place in a lot of different parts of the United States. It's just that Memphis happened to be a place that had this sort of cultural cachet. But also, I mean, it 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 feels very much in the same way that Down by Law feels very much of the place that it takes that 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 it feels entrenched in that place. And I guess that's the kind of thing that can happen when you're filming in that area and kind of soaking it up in terms of atmosphere. But I just find it really interesting that Jim Jarmusch doesn't have any kind of direct personal connection with Oh, man. Well, Doug, I watched an interview with the set uh, designer uh, Mm -hmm. of the film, and it was in the the diner uh, where um, – what is the actress's name? I'm sorry, the Italian actress. Oh, uh, to uh, uh, Nicoletta Brasci. So this interview with the set designer was with Nicoletta Brasci in the uh, was not with it was with set designer in the diner where Nicoletta Brasci has the uncomfortable conversation right. about Elvis's ghost and the question. But, is I just want to mention by Tom Newton is terrific in this as well as a creepy yes, character. He also so is wearing good. the most ridiculous clothes. <laughs> he's so upsetting. It, it, it's the combo of his clothes and his hair and then yes. the intensity of his look. So they're in this diner, right? And uh, the interviewer asked, like, well, why do you think that uh, Jarmusch chose this diner for that scene? And the set designer goes, well, I know for a fact that he got off the train or the bus <laughs> or whatever it was for his first time in Memphis and just walked around and the train station is directly across the street. So my guess is this is one of the first places he saw. And he's like, but I know that that's how he wrote the script. He got off the bus or the train or whatever it was he took to get down to Memphis, walked around and then wrote the script for the film. And so like, really he's informed by what he sees and what impression he's getting, which is like, I bet like what's going on in downtown Memphis. Like this is a, corner you know it it would be impossible to argue that memphis is not a cornerstone of american culture but in 1989 downtown memphis didn't scream we're preserving our history it preserved it really said we've abandoned our history and we don't care about this place anymore um 
Uh, also, that downtown diner, according to this guy who's from there, was still one of the coolest places in all of Memphis. And he would, he argued in this interview from 2013 or 14 was still one of the coolest places in all of Memphis. So, you know, if I'm ever down there, I'm hitting up that diner immediately. I mean, you can say what you want about Jim Jarmusch. He's good at recognizing things that are cool. Sure, sure, sure. What did you think of Steve Buscemi's performance? I said it's very much in his wheelhouse here, but I mean, at the time, his wheelhouse didn't necessarily even exist. How did how did you think he acquits himself in Mystery Train? He's great. He's 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 really great. I mean, it, it is in some ways an unlikable performance because he's there to be this kind of almost nettish, like shrinking violet who's just in all the wrong places and has things just not go right for him. But he's mm-hmm. so good at it. He's so good. He, he, his response when he finds out this dude is not even really his brother-in-law is fucking classic. It's classic. <laughs> I just think, I think if, you know, obviously not everyone who listens to this podcast is this, but for the people who listen to this because they are true Steve Buscemi fans, if you have not seen this movie, you you have to. It's not a huge performance. You know, it's not like, his movie, but it is just a classic Steve Buscemi performance, and I loved it top to bottom. It's one of those defining Steve Buscemi performances, right? Right. right. Because when you think of, of the kind of characters that he played around this time period, this is exactly that type of character. And I think, to a certain extent, you were mentioning before, if we were to talk to him, he might probably be a little frustrated at some point in his career that he was put in this, this box of sort of characters that he played. I imagine that's one of the reasons that he seems to be enjoying himself so much in this kind of Adam Sandler verse style movies where he gets to play comedy, where he gets to play characters that are not necessarily always just on the verge of freaking out at all times, though he does that a lot in those movies as well. But I mean, I think that that uh, any character actor uh, can feel a little uh, restrained sometimes by the roles that that they're most uh, famous for. Uh, and and at this period, I don't think Steve Buscemi necessarily felt that, but this is exactly the kind of role that would start defining him in the rest of the, the decade that was to follow. I mean, he's also really good at it. Like, you know, yeah. not, not that I want to discount. Again, we don't know. We haven't had a chance to talk to him about it. I wouldn't discount it if he felt that way. But I think that, you know, this is a movie that doesn't rest on anyone. This is an ensemble film, you know, and he has one of the most memorable roles in the movie. No one yeah. is going to leave this movie being like, Oh, I forgot about that part where the guy got fucking shot in the leg. That's this is the he is the punchline of the fucking movie, and it works so well. And I, I just again, I, I don't know that this movie is what you know propelled him into uh, into uh, fame, but you know it, it's certainly a notable performance. You know, uh, the episode of uh, Siskel and Ebert I watched, Ebert commented on it as a superstar performance. So I'm, I'm with Ebert on this one. He it, it, it's memorable. Yeah, I mean, I think the when I think of the movie that drew people's attention to Steve Buscemi, this isn't necessarily the first one that comes to mind. It would probably be Living in Oblivion or Reservoir Dogs, things like that. But um, but this is certainly the kind of role that I think that people would uh, would would see. You know, if, if you're a fan of Jim Jarmusch, if you're a person going to film festivals at that time period, if you're interested in this kind of movie, you're not going to walk out of this movie forgetting that Steve Buscemi was in it. Yeah, obviously, yeah, definitely not. And and it's it's for me um, because the whole movie is so charming. It's one that I could imagine revisiting, uh, partly because of of Steve Buscemi. Liam, would you recommend the film Mystery Train to friends and family? Yeah, I basically have. You should see this movie, especially <laughs> if especially if you like Jarmusch. Like, I think if you know, there's going to be people who hate 
Jarmusch. They Lots of people. Absolutely. I, you know, the number of people who watch The Dead Can't Die not knowing what they were getting themselves or the dead won't die sorry who 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 didn't know what they're getting themselves into those folks who found that to be an interminable torture of a film i don't know that this movie's going to win them over either I, this isn't you know something outside of of the wheelhouse but if you're someone who already has an affinity for this kind of film or or even if you're looking to jump in i don't think this is a bad place to start i i wouldn't necessarily start here i think actually down by law might be my first first uh foray into jarmusch but um I don't think this is a bad place to start, and it's certainly a strong Buscemi performance. I will say, if you watch Down by Law and Mystery Train and you don't like them, well, stop right there with the career of Jim Jarmusch because you're not going to necessarily enjoy his other work. I mean, I I will say, for some people, Ghost Dog stands out. For some people, Ghost Dog is the one Jarmusch movie that they're willing to put up with. (laughs) Liam, what movie are we going to watch on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids? Oh, we're going to be watching 2017's, uh, let's say, political comedy, The Death of Stalin. <laughs> the the Armando Iannucci-directed uh, film, The Death of Stalin, from 2017. Liam, have you seen this movie already? Oh, I have. I have. In yes. Fact. And so have I. This is a unique situation here on yeah. this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I did. I, I, I'll just put it out there i chose this movie i often choose the movies and then go to liam and be like is this okay and you either say yes or no i can't remember what you said about this one but uh, i did want to cover a more recent steve buscemi performance and i will say of the most recent steve buscemi performances i've seen this is far and away the best i think and it's uh but in terms of will we both love the movie hey i guess we'll talk about it on the next episode yes I, I was going to say what I thought, then I thought, no, let's keep it a surprise. Let's keep it a surprise on the next episode of How Do You Do, Fellow Kids, 2017's The Death of Stalin. Liam, if people want to check out more of the Cinema Smorgasbord oeuvre uh, or other podcasts uh, or, or just what we're up to, what's the best way for them to do so? Well, I would recommend everyone goes to cinepunks.com, C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. That's where you're going to get our most recent episodes, as well as the whole family of podcasts that we are a part of. Uh, great writing, interesting merch, opportunities to support us on Patreon. There's a whole bunch of stuff over there at cinepunks.com. They can also uh, uh, access our archive of episodes uh, at our own website, cinemasmogosport.com. Uh, they can, of course, find us on social media. Cinepunks is C I N E P O N X on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And Cinema Smorgasbord is on Twitter at Cinema Smorg, S M O R G. They can also follow us individually on Twitter. You're at Doug Tilly, Doug <laughs> underscore Tilly. That's T I L L. E-Y. Thank you, Leo. <laughs> a, real, a real piece of garbage has the at Doug Tilly, but one of these days I'm going to take it. You're going to find him and hurt him. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, you can find Liam Rules. Uh, I should say. And, of course, you can find Liam O'Donnell on Twitter at Liam Rules. That's R-U-L-Z. Uh, and you should follow us both. And, in fact, since you have a bit of time on your hands, ladies and gentlemen, why don't you head over to iTunes, leave us a review, tell your friends about Cinema Smorgasbord. Liam, I think it's time for us to conserve our energy. We need it. We need to take a little break. When we come back, the death of Stalin. We'll be back very soon. Good night, everybody. Stay safe. Night-night.